0: Good morning, it's good to see you all here this morning, packed house at 10 o'clock. Just a quick reminder of why we are working diligently behind the scenes to create more space, Um, not because um, you are a part of a head count, but because of the work God is doing in your life, the work that we trust God is doing in your hearts even this morning, Um, We're excited to create more space for more people to come be a part of what God is doing here at our church. If you're a visitor with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Jason Williams. I have uh, the privilege and honor of serving as lead pastor here. Um, I get to serve with an amazing staff, with an amazing body of elders. And if you're new here, um, I want to let you know about an upcoming Connect class. It's next Sunday. Um, It's in the third service, the 1145 Service. Um, We will provide a a lunch, and this is an opportunity if you're new um, and want to learn more about the church to come hear about the church. If you're thinking about joining as a member, um, this is the way we do membership here. You come and you hear about what we believe and how the church functions and where we're going as a church. You get to meet some of the elders and ask questions. And then from there, you can can be free to pray and discern about whether or not God's calling you to join. There's no strings attached, no pressure. Just coming to the Connect class doesn't obligate you to join. Um, But I want to extend that invitation to you this morning. If that's, if that's something that would interest you, um, we do need to know that you're coming for the food and for the printed materials to make sure we get the right head count. So the community card in front of you, there's a lot of options there. But if you want to um, be added to the Connect class, if you'll just circle. Um, I want more info about becoming a member or write Connect class on there. Just somehow indicate that's what you're interested in. We'll make sure and get you on the list. And then come join us next Sunday, 1145 for that. Um, it'll be just down this hallway upstairs. Um, in what used to be our student ministry room where the 5th and 8th grade meets. That's where that class will take place. All right, so we're going to be in Romans 8 this morning. A slight uh, deviation from the sermon series, as Jason Martin has already mentioned. We're going through Desires of the Heart sermon series, looking at the idols of our heart. And, uh, and so this morning we want to do something different. In light of um, the current events of the last four to six weeks for us as a nation, for us even as a state... Um, just discerning this week would be a really good week for us to stop, uh, to recalibrate our hearts, to anchor ourselves in the truth of Scripture, um, to walk through God's heart in the midst of tragedy and suffering. And so when we say tragedy and suffering, we're talking about anything from um, a mass shooting that would take place, like what happened, events this last Sunday night in Las Vegas, um, we're talking about Hurricane Harvey uh, impacting the coast of Texas, many people displaced, people suffering. We're also talking about even those small moments in your life, um, those moments of pain, those moments of tragedy and suffering that catch your heart off God, guard that cause us to ask, why me? How could a loving God allow this to happen? Right, And it's, it's our natural human response to ask that question. God isn't offended by that question. And so today we're going to look at the heart of God in the midst of tragedy and suffering. So we look at um, a situation that happened um, like last Sunday night in Las Vegas where seemingly one man with, at this point, unknown motives, um, chooses to uh, stockpile weapons to maliciously and meticulously plan out the murder of 59-plus people and injure over 500 more. We look at that and we say, how could that happen? Why did that happen? But here's the reality. If we'll continue going back in time through the human story, we're going to come across a lot of events like last Sunday night. It's not an isolated event. And we just go back three and a half years or so ago, and we're in Orlando in a nightclub, and 49 people are murdered there by one gunman. We go back through U.S. history to 2001, We're at 9-11, small group of terrorists, right? Kill over 2,900 people and wound over 6,000 more. We go back to Pearl Harbor, over 2,000 killed there. We go back to the Holocaust, over 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust, a million and a half of which were children. And see, we could keep going back through the human story, couldn't we? Suffering and tragedy mark the human story. So why? Why did this happen? We're going to go to Romans 8 this morning and allow the counsel of God's word to anchor our hearts in what is true. To remind us of where hope comes from in the midst of tragedy and suffering. Whether you're still struggling to wrap your mind around what happened in Las Vegas or uh, you got a medical diagnosis this week that's very personal. Whatever your suffering may be, we're going to go to God's word to anchor us in what is true. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, Paul says this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I love the Apostle Paul. Um, I'm so thankful for his deep theological thinking of the things of God and the way he words things. But at times, I just need Paul to put it in practical terms, right? How does that play out in real life, what Paul is saying? The first thing we see in what Paul is laying out here, starting in verse 18, is that in the midst of suffering, right, in order to understand what's going on, we have to take a step back. And on two accounts, he calls us to do this. First of all, he talks about our suffering in this way. He says, I don't consider the suffering of this present time or this moment worth comparing to something else what does he he say with the glory that is to be revealed to us so he's saying what's happening in this moment doesn't compare with something else that's bigger that's in the future now he doesn't get into a lot of detail right the the glory that is to be revealed what is he talking about here the first thing we do is we step back and we realize, okay, I'm not going to be able to make sense of this moment of suffering simply by looking at this moment of suffering. I've got to look bigger than that. But second of all, he draws our attention off of ourselves to creation as a whole, doesn't he? He said, for I don't consider the suffering of this moment to be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, and then, and then right after that, he shifts our perspective, doesn't he? He quits talking about me and you, and look at what he says. He says, that creation itself, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. And so Paul, to, to help us out here in understanding tragedy and suffering, the first thing we learn is we have to take a step back. We have to see our momentary affliction and suffering in light of the, the timeline of human history. We've got to look at the, the bigger picture. Not only that, we've got to be willing to look beyond ourselves to see creation in a whole as a whole. That somehow the answer to the question lies in a much bigger timeline than what's happening right now in this moment. That somehow the answer to our question is, is bigger than what's happening to me, and it's about what's happening to us. That my pain in this moment is somehow connected to the pain that creation is subjected to at this very moment. Now we're going to talk about practically how that works. But what Paul says here is this. that that, that Here's the the understanding is that right now creation is subjected to futility. And we're going to talk about what he means by that. And then he's going to call us to the future and say that creation itself is, is looking forward to being set free from this futility, this bondage. So to understand what Paul's talking about here and to get our, our mind wrapped around an eternal perspective, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 2. We have to go back to the beginning, the framework, if you will, of the human story. So in Genesis 2, we find this conversation between God and his creation, Adam. Adam. And he comes to Adam in verse 16 and he he gives him a command. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You are surely you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you surely or will shall surely die. And so the first thing we, we see here is that creation itself has a moral framework. There, there, there is a true good and a true evil. Now, from, from, from a secular perspective who would argue that that's not true, that the world was left to chance and we're all just, we're just part of some random chaotic coming together of molecules, even that unbelieving world would look back on last Sunday night and say, that was pure evil. Right? In order for something to be pure evil, there has to be a moral framework within which you're, you're working, right? And so the news headlines, the, everything from the president to the late night talk show host, they look back and they describe that event with these certain words, it was purely evil. To which I would say to an unbelieving world, how could it be evil if there's no such thing as good and evil? No moral framework right, from which we see the world. But clearly, clearly there is, right? Clearly when one man kills 59 people, we look at that and go, that's clearly evil. Regardless of whatever motive or whatever excuses, whatever reasons might be behind him doing this, we would say that's evil. And at the same time, when we see selflessness or heroism, we say that's good. Right, right. We were quick to turn to those, those, those civilians who were out there, right, shielding people with their bodies, taking pieces of fence and, 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 and making these makeshift uh, ways to carry the wounded to their own vehicles and then drive them. We look at it as heroism. We say, that's good, unmistakably. Right? Even non-Christians look at that and go, one is evil and one is good. Well, we have a moral framework here in Genesis 2. God says to, to Adam, the world you live in has moral absolutes. To obey my command is good. To disobey my command is evil. And what he says here is, Adam, if you, you're free to eat from anything. You're free to enjoy the, the world I created. However, this one thing I command, if you do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Genesis chapter 1, if we rewind one chapter... God creates the world, and he speaks a declaration over his creation. He says, this world is good, very good. So before disobedience to God comes into the world, Adam's only knowledge is of that which is good. And so, But when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and your disobedience, your mind will now be open to evil. And that's how we look back on the events of Sunday night, and we go, that's evil. Our minds have been open to the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the the impact of this is what I think we we underestimate and we don't agree on as a culture, okay? So here's what the Bible would say. Everything changes at this moment. Genesis chapter three. Eve follows the same pattern that you and I follow in our own lives. She hears a lie from the enemy. She believes a lie. She acts on the lie. She sins against God, and immediately she's embarrassed and shamed. And the Bible says Adam was with her. Meaning, he did those same things. He believed the lie, he acted on the lie, he sinned against God, and immediately he felt the impacts of shame and death on his life. And immediately there's a sever between the relationship between God and man. They hide from God now. Why? Because of the shame that they sensed and they felt from their sin and disobedience. And now they start hiding from one another. And we see this impact, right? It becomes this, this, this shroud, this cloud of darkness over all of humanity. We call this the fall. This is the place in human history where sin came into the world and fractured a relationship between God and man and between man and man. I mean, the very next chapter in Genesis is chapter 4. And, uh, and, and Cain and Abel, two brothers, are bringing their offerings to God, and Cain's motives are askew, and God calls him out on it. And what does Cain do? Does he respond in humility and repentance? No, what does he do? He gets angry with God. He gets mad at God. And then look at what God says to Cain. This is chapter 4, very next chapter. The Lord said to Cain, Cain, why are you so angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and here's its desire. Its desire is contrary to you. It's against you, but you must rule over it. What does he mean by that? That sin will always run contrary to what you're seeking in life. Think of it this way. That's what he's saying to Cain. Cain. You know that desire for joy you have in your life? Sin is always trying to to run contrary to that, to talk you into doing something that will kill your joy. That that longing and sense of peace that you have, you want to be at peace at night when you lay your head down on your pillow, sin is crouching like this roaring lion, and its desire is to, is to, is to, to divert you from peace. It's always working against you, Cain. Now, Cain, don't let it rule over you. You've got to rule over it. And that's the description of The fallen world we live in, this cycle of sin and suffering. Now, God wants us to have an accurate view of who he is. So this is not a story about how God wound up the universe like a clock and then just took a step back and let it unfold however it unfolded. Because what does Paul say in Romans 8? He says, all of creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What we have to understand about Genesis chapter 3 is this was a judicial decision from God. God hates sin. He does. And we're going to talk about how God views sinful people like us, but he hates sin and disobedience. And he says to Adam, there will be a judiciary response to you if you sin. And here, here, here's what it will be. Death. And so this cycle of sin and death is what the psalmist calls uh, the valley of the shadow of what? Death. He's describing life in a fallen world. That's why if you go back through the human story and we, we, we start at what happened in Las Vegas, we keep going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see this, this theme stitched into the human story of sin and suffering. We have to understand what God is saying here. This is a judicial thing that you and I are subject to sin and suffering. Now, verse 21 gives us hope. Because here's here's what we have to understand. While sin and suffering is, is a description of the world we live in today, what God reminds us through Paul is that sin and suffering don't have the final word. Even though in this moment, right now in time, it feels very dark, it feels very weighty, it feels like we're just waiting on one more tragedy to unfold, 21 says this, that creation itself, as it's subjected to futility, it's waiting for something, it's waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So if we, f- we started in Genesis 2, if we go all the way to the other end of your Bible, Revelation 21, let's look at what happens in the end of the story. This is Revelation 21. Starting in verse 3, John is, 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 is seeing this vision. He's hearing the voice of God. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Does that sound familiar? Wait a second. That's undoing what happened in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? When the dwelling place of God became fractured, right? When, when, when man was abolished from the garden, that relationship was fractured. What we're reading in 21 is somehow that gets fixed. That's good news, right? Amen. He goes on to say this in Revelation And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Very simple words. This is the description. We'll be united as one people in this moment. I mean, we see it quickly between Adam and Eve. Their relationship already is tarnished with shame, isn't it? They're already beginning to hide from one another, and this is just going to become a fracture that gets wider and wider and wider. That's why you struggle in your marriages. That's why you struggle in relationships, sin and suffering. And what we're reading here is that now in this moment when God restores this and his dwelling place becomes with man, that we will be his people, one people, united. (laughs) Lots of different uh, cultures, lots of different languages, lots of different colors of skin, lots of different walks of life united as what? One people. Everything that was fractured in Genesis 3 from this description in Revelation 21 seems to say what? God is going to fix things. verse 4 Revelation 21 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more Yeah Even if you removed all of the tragedy the mass shootings from your life, and all of the natural disasters and the hurricanes and the tornadoes, and, and you were allowed just to live as a, as a healthy human being, you still have to face death at the end. right? There's still a suffering headed your way. And what we're reading in Revelation 21 is what? God will bring all suffering to an end For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What God created as good in the beginning, he will restore and redeem as what? New in the end. So the story, when we look backwards, we can unmistakably see there's a moral framework to the human existence. Whether you're a Christian or not, you can't deny that. Right, and we, and we look at the world around us, and there doesn't see any way to escape this. What's the solution? More legislation, less legislation. Who knows what will fix this problem? Listen, the Bible is saying you, you and I can't fix this problem. Our hope is not found in fixing this problem. Let's go to Revel, uh, Romans eight twenty two. The Apostle Paul continues talking about our suffering. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's a lot in that. Let's talk about that. So this this feeling that you that overwhelms you when your heart wrenches and you break when you read a headline like what you probably read last monday many of you have said to me i couldn't even watch the, the videos i couldn't just go there my heart was just wrenching the bible's describing that as an inward groaning right a groaning that's comparable to like when a woman is in labor it's painful it's just not right there's not any relief from it there's this inward brokenness when you see those things and Paul is saying, listen, creation itself is groaning right now. Not only creation, but we are groaning. Even as Christians, we groan and we hurt and we, we wrench, don't we, when we see things like that. And the first thing I would say is, is this. So Paul is saying here, you want to make sense of sin and suffering, first of all, you've got to be willing to take a step back. Look at the big timeline of the human story. Not only that, look beyond your own circumstances and look at creation as a whole. And the second thing he says here is this. This is what we do as Christians. We groan as we wait. We mourn. We weep. We let our hearts wrench when we see suffering. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says it this way. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When you allow your heart to break in the midst of suffering, whether it's very personal and it's your friend or yourself or your family member or it's, it's, it's a group of people you've never met before, okay? you're reflecting the heart of God in that moment. You're allowing your heart to break and you're weeping with those who weep. Now, there'll be a day where God wipes away all tears, right? But we have to understand that right now in this life, think of it this way. There is not one molecule in this universe that is outside the authority of God. Nor is there one tear cried in pain or suffering or loss and mourning that is unaccounted for by your loving heavenly Father. We are called to weep. We are called to mourn. We are called to break For those who are broken. Paul reminds us here, doesn't he? While we wait, here's what we do. We groan. We mourn. We weep. We long for what? Something better. Right? We remind ourselves that we we weren't meant for this home. This This world is broken. Something's not right here. And the second thing he says is this. Verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. What hope? The redemption of our bodies. Now, Revelation hadn't been written at this point in time, but I think Paul is looking forward to something remotely close to what John saw in Revelation. And Paul is saying, Listen, I don't know for sure what it's going to look like, but we know this. Jesus died and was resurrected, so we know that God redeems death. And we know why Jesus died, because of sin. So we know that God redeems sin. So here's our hope. It's not in this world. It's not in my circumstances. It's in the future, God's redemption of my my physical body. And then he says this, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? For if we hope, For for if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. So I want to talk for a minute about the relationship between hope and suffering. The same author, Paul, in Romans 5, the first five verses, says something that the first time I read it caught me off guard. The first two verses I was good with. He was talking to the church. and said, hey, guys, we need to rejoice in the blessings we have in Christ. I'm good with that. I'm on board with Yeah, Paul. Let's not forget that. But then in verse 3, he said, oh, yeah, and by the way, we also rejoice in our suffering. What What are you talking about, Paul? Who rejoices in suffering? That sounds dumb. He says, here's why we rejoice in our suffering. Because your suffering produces endurance. And endurance shapes or produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint you. And while on the surface we might ask, what's the relationship between suffering and hope? Paul would say, everything. I mean, without suffering and pain, hope is irrelevant, right? It's why we have heroism. That's why we, we applaud selflessness, because why? It reminds us that the selfishness and the darkness of this world is not going to have the final word. And that's what we're hoping for. I think one of the most helpful places to turn is Isaiah 53 when we ask about God's perspective on suffering, how God views suffering, and how God allows suffering. So, in Isaiah 53, the first nine verses, God describes the suffering that the coming Messiah would um, incur. Okay? And at this point in human history, the, the Israelites knew that there was this coming Messiah, that God promised to send them, this rescuer, this savior, but they didn't know specifically it would be God's son. They were just expecting God to send one like them, who would be this great leader everybody loved, and they would follow this leader. In Isaiah, Isaiah 53, God said, let me tell you some things about this leader that I'm going to send. He's actually going to suffer. Suffer? And he starts off by saying, yeah, he's actually going to be not super popular. He's going to be like one whom men would actually hide their faces from, not just naturally gravitate towards. But not only that, he's going, to, he's going to suffer painfully. By his wounds you will be healed. By his stripes he's going to be beaten. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he's going to be led to his own death. But if you jump down to verse 10, Isaiah fifty-three ten, look at the first half of verse 10. After this vivid, horrific description of the suffering of the Messiah, verse 10, Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. What does that tell us about the heart of God? I mean, nobody's standing up and going, that's a bad parent, right? Because God knew in this moment he was going to send his son to do all this. But what Isaiah is saying, but it was God's will to send his son to be crushed and to be wounded Why? We go back and read the nine verses before that. It tells us why. Look at at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Think about that. God's God's will was to crush him and to wound him. Why? Why? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's the reason nobody stands up and says, God, you're a horrible father. Why? Because it was to our good that his son came and suffered and died. Now, how can God be a loving father and allow his son to step into that suffering and death knowingly? Here's how. Because God sees things on the big perspective. And this moment of suffering for Jesus, right, was, was just a hiccup in the timeline of eternity and God saw the greater good that was to come. So God willingly endured suffering and even death for the greater good that was to come. That's the same thing Paul's telling us here. I don't consider the sufferings of this moment to be worth what? The greater good that is to come. The greater glory that is to be revealed. Now, the metaphor that Paul uses in Romans 8, I feel like resounds with about half of us this morning. He uses childbirth. And the best dad in here, who was there the whole way, holding her hand, white-knuckling it, still cannot fully relate to that metaphor. Right, ladies? Okay, so let's talk about what that means for us for just a moment. So, ladies, many of you in this room, got pregnant on purpose. And and you knew what was going to happen to your body in pregnancy, and you knew that the only way to get out of it was a very painful ending. Right? You, you had health class. Hopefully your parents told you what was going to happen at a young age. You knew what you were getting into, yet you did it intentionally. You willfully subjected yourself to pain. I would call it suffering. Men, can we just say that? That's suffering. Why did you do it? Because of the greater good some of you did it more than once some of you went back like a third time a fourth time a fifth time why because the the, the momentary suffering was not worth comparing to what the greater good the joy to come right something beautiful coming out of that pain that's what paul is saying about our suffering he's using that metaphor to describe it now for the rest of us who are Men who have not endured that, we may have seen it, but we haven't endured it, right? There are other examples we can go to, lesser examples, but other examples. How many of you in this room have ever run a marathon? Good show of hands, three, four, okay. You had to train for that, and your training was painful. Nobody just made a decision, I think I want to run a marathon, and went out and ran a marathon, right? A lot of pain, and you did it on purpose, That's kind of crazy for the rest of us in the room. Yeah, people actually like go out and run over 20 miles on purpose. And nobody's chasing them. Right? Why would you do that? Why? You endured all that suffering, all that pain. You worked out. You worked hard. And when your body said, hey, let's just quit. You didn't quit. You kept going. Why? Because there was a greater good you were after. That's why. Right? We can put this in any arena of life going to college. Anybody have that moment halfway through your first semester of college? Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. There are way too many papers due. Like, you start day one, you get the itinerary, and you're like, why are you giving me this? Just tell me along the way what I need to do. That was my philosophy, which ended in a 0.68 GPA the first semester, which is a totally different story. But if you went to college, you got halfway through that first semester, and that semester is designed to crush you and to get your attention to show you life is hard. You're going to have to step it up, and you're halfway, and you're like, I just don't know if I can get all these papers written, study for all these exams, and still have time to to be with my homies, and, right, all these responsibilities and weights in life. And yet, many of you, if not all of you, you made it, didn't you? One step at a time, one foot in front of the other, you endured the pain, the hardship, the suffering, the late nights, the no sleep, right, the cram sessions, and you got to the end of your semester, and you made it. You took all your books to the bookstore and turned them in, got nickels on the dollar return. You took that big fat refund check and went and had some good food, rewarded yourself for hard work, right? We can put this in any arena of life. Every person in this room has willfully, right, you have willfully incurred pain or suffering on some level, okay, on some level intentionally because of this reason you believed in the greater good that's what paul is talking about that's what isaiah 53 is talking about that's how god willfully crushed his son subjected him to sin and suffering because god an eternal god said here's the thing i have the final say over sin and suffering i have the final say over death i'm not leaving this up to chance hoping jesus makes it god's saying listen here's the thing i see the greater good and a loving father will allow his children to walk through sin or excuse me, pain and suffering if there is a greater good to be had. And that's what God our Father is saying to us as humanity. Right now we're walking in the valley of the shadow of death. The impact of the fall is upon us. And in this moment, our suffering feels heavy and hard, whether it's your personal suffering or you're watching tragedy from a distance. It's, it's supposed to rent your heart that you would weep with those who weep, you would mourn, and you would long for Something better suffering if for no other reasons awakens our souls to this reality and this truth this world we live in is not our home something's not right here right something's not right here we can't we can't fix this world with legislation you can't fix it with lack of legislation you can't fix it with this political party or that political party or no political party we can't fix this world and that's why we long for something better. Now, I want to I I end with some, some practical thoughts on what we do with this as Christians, okay? First of all, let's, let's, re, let's recount how, how Christians respond to and endure suffering. Here's how we do that. First of all, we have to see our current suffering in light of the greater story of human history. And we have to look at the author, he who sits as the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the authority over every moment, every molecule, every tear. Second of all, we mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep. You become like Christ when you weep with those who weep. It's not an ungodly thing to do. We believe and we tether ourselves to the truth that we believe in a God who can bring about the greater good out of something that's that's bad, that's evil, that's suffering. We remind ourselves and one another that this world we live in is fallen. It's not our home. We hold fast to our belief and our trust in a God who has the final word and will undo the vicious cycle of sin and death. And we hold fast to our trust and our belief in a God who will redeem, who will restore, who will make all things new one day. Let's talk for a minute about um, how we respond to those who are outside the church or those who are not believers. So I think I've had a few of you ask me, how do we have this conversation? First of all, I want to say, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I'm so glad you're here. I have so much respect for a person who would say, listen, I'm not a Christian or I'm, I don't where you, land, but I'll at least come listen to find out what Christianity is about. Okay, It's those who... Or outside the church, who say, I disagree with Christianity but don't have any under idea or understanding of what Christianity is, right? That's hard to work with. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. For those of you who are Christians, here's what I would encourage you with three words, okay? Three words to think about. First of all, humility. It's, 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 it's um, a universal response to things like what happened in Las Vegas is to declare that that's purely evil, and it is. It's evil, it was an evil act. But as Christians, we must make that declaration from a platform of humility. So here's how I encourage you to have that conversation. Somebody's like, you know, how could a loving God allow something so evil to happen? I would, I would agree and say, look, man, that was, you're absolutely right. It was evil. I agree with you. The reason I agree with you is because I believe that there's a moral framework to the world we live in. There are things that are actually good and things that are actually evil. But here's, you know, here's where I just have to let you know that like, here's what else it reminds me It reminds me how good God is to me. And so I don't talk about an evil person from a platform of self-righteousness. I talk about it from a platform of humility. See, so it reminds me of God's goodness in my life. You know what? I've committed some evil acts as well. None of them made the, high, the headlines. You know, you might, you might think they were as atrocious as what happened in Las Vegas, but can I just say I'm, I'm partly responsible for the death of God's son. And so we talk about evil, we call evil evil, but we do so from a platform of humility. Understanding but for the grace of God goes every one of us. The second thing I would encourage you to is honesty. Um, don't pretend to have answers you don't have. You are a finite, created being. You cannot fully understand who God is nor His motives. All we can do is seek to understand Him as He's revealed himself through the Bible. So if you don't have answers, it's OK to say, "Listen, I don't know the answer to that either. I mean that's where I stand in faith. That's where I stand in trust. That's where, I, that's where I stand in hope of that God has it in control. And those things I can't understand and wrap my mind around. I trust that he can. And one day I'll be able to see from his perspective and I'll get it. But right now I don't get it. Be honest. Don't try to make stuff up if you don't know. Offer to seek it out with them. Hey, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm glad you asked. I'm gonna, you know what, when I get home, I'm gonna open my Bible. I'm gonna start looking and digging into that. And if you are interested in doing that with me, let's just do it. Let's meet at Starbucks. Let's open God's word and just see what he has to say be honest, so be humble, be honest, and then be biblical. Okay, let's don't make up any more of this just made-up trash that's just opinion. American Christianity is so filled with just junk theology that we make up because we want it to be true. Be biblical. There is room for God to be just and loving. He's a father. He has a judicial heart, and he has a gracious heart. Don't try to soft sell things or make excuses for God. Okay, let's be biblical. Let's let God be who he says he is. Now, the other thing I've been asked this week is, how do you have this conversation with your children? Okay, and there's a lot of debate out there about how much you share and at what age and all that. So I want to start with this statement. You know, at Solid Rock, we believe the Bible describes the home to work in such a way that as parents, you're the chief shepherd of your home. Okay, if mom and dad are present, dad, you take the lead on that. Mom, you be involved in it. If you're a single parent, like, that's you. You're the, you're the person who best knows your children, and you've been entrusted to shepherd your children's hearts and minds. So the first word I want to give you in this particular conversation is prudence. Prudence is knowing what to say and when to say it. Maybe the answer is not, I hide my children from everything that happens that's evil in the world, And so I don't turn on the TV, we don't talk about it, we don't read news, we don't on the internet. So maybe that's not the answer. But maybe nor is it we just turn the news on, we tell them about every, you know, gory, bloody detail. Maybe the the prudence is somewhere in the middle. And maybe you've got to make that decision for each child individually based on where they are in their relationship with the world, their maturity, their understanding. Okay, so I'm going to encourage you, first of all, be prudent, whatever you choose to tell them about. Secondly, once again, be honest, Okay. Your children are going to ask some incredible questions that you won't have answers to. Hey, don't call me and get, try to get me to answer your kids' questions. I've got two kids. They're, are, they're asking me the same question. It's okay to say, you know what, little Susie, you know, mommy doesn't know. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to press into the Word of God. I'm going to study God's Word. I'm going to look for the answer. And if you want to look for it with me, here's how I look for answers in the Bible. Use that as an opportunity to teach your children how to go to God's Word and to, to learn. But be honest. It's okay to say, I don't know. And then finally, I would say this, be biblical once again. And, and, and here's where this is going to connect with our overall sermon series, okay? Today, 2017, the American church culture, like I said earlier, is infiltrated with these false ideas of who God is, things we make up, things we want God to be that are different from who he actually is. Let's not, let's not perpetuate that in our children, Let's not tell them false truths to try to appease them in the moment so they'll quit asking questions or or they won't struggle and wrestle with who God is. Let's be biblical with our children. Let's use these opportunities, whatever level you're going to share with them. Use this to teach them about moral framework, about the human story, about where sin entered the world, where death entered the world. Remind them that sin and death don't have the final word, and right now we're waiting with patience for something better, and, and when things hurt, we cry, and it's okay to cry, it's okay to groan right? Romans 8, if we were to read the whole chapter, what Paul tells us is sometimes we groan and we can't even put our groaning in words and the Holy Spirit steps in and intercedes for us. Teach your children that, right? Give them a biblical framework through which to see the world and to see God that they might grow up to be people who worship the one true God. See, here's the thing. If you're visiting with us today, we're in the middle of a sermon series where we're going through the idols of our heart, and last week um, was performance. And, and I got a lot of feedback from you guys, for, even from myself. Like we, we, Most of us related with that. Driven by performance, have made performance an idol, something we go to for satisfaction and validation, yet in none of our lives do we have a shrine at our home that says performance on it, and we bow down to it and worship it. It's all off the grid, under the radar. It's incognito, Right? However, if we're going to talk about false idols, false worshiping of God, there is an area of our life where potentially we give the title God to it. And that's when we develop this false image of who God is. We worship it. We get a t shirt for it. And then in moments of tragedy, God doesn't act like the God in our mind should act. And we're, right, we're, we're shaken to the core. Because, see, here's the truth the question is not why would God allow suffering to happen? The question I think you actually mean to ask is why would my God let suffering happen? How can the God in my mind and heart be loving and also allow suffering? The God of the Bible has no trouble with that. There's an explanation for how that works. But sometimes, right, we find ourselves in situations where the God that we believe in is, right, is different from the world we see around us. What's happening in that moment is God is is exposing your false deities. I want you to think of it like this. If this is heavy and weighty, um, life is heavy and weighty, okay? I would rather us walk through situations like what happened, whether it's a hurricane or whether it's a shooting, terrorism, whatever it is, let's walk through it with our souls tethered to truth, okay? Here's what we have to come to, to grips with. If the God that you worship and claim to believe in never disagrees with you, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. His ways are not your ways. His perspectives are not your perspectives. Even as his children, let me just ask you, fathers, do you always agree with your children? Sometimes you have to correct their perspectives, right? So does our heavenly father. It's loving that he disagrees with us. We need him to disagree with us. And if the God in your mind and your heart never disagrees, disagrees with you, potentially you've, you've come up with this false image of God and you've conformed God into your image rather than the other way around. If the God in your mind and your heart always seeks to make you comfortable, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. That's not his primary motive. Making us comfortable in this life is not his primary motive. If the, the God that you worship and you believe in doesn't hate sin and love sinners, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. God hates sin. He hates the impact of it, He hates the smell of it, He hates the sight of it. Yet He loves us. How does He do that? Right? How does He do that? I'm a sinner. I've sinned. Go back to Isaiah 53 because he bore our griefs on the cross. He died for our sins. And then finally, I would just say this. If the God that you worship um, in your mind, in your heart, you believe in, you trust in, um, if he's not both permissible of suffering and loving and gracious, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. He not only permits suffering, he permitted it for his own son for the sake of the greater good of humanity. I want to leave you with those thoughts. I'm going to pray for us. And and once again, I know this morning has been heavy. If you're visiting with us, we don't do this every Sunday. Um, But I sense this week that this would be an appropriate time just to have our hearts recalibrated, to be reminded of where to tether our hearts. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know something. The God we believe in, he's good. Even when in my, my, my flesh and my heart I don't always agree with him, his way is always better than mine. Always better. It always ends in my good. And so I just want to tell you that today, if you're here today kicking the tires on Christianity, my greatest hope for you is that you would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. That suffering we read about in Isaiah 53, it was for you. That's the God we worship. And he died for your sins. That if you would trust in him and him alone, you would not only be forgiven of your sins, that relationship with God would be restored and he would secure eternal life for you. And you would begin to wait and long for something better that is to be revealed so I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward, and our prayer partners um, are going to be at the front and the back. You know who they are because they wear a little lanyard that says prayer partner on it. And maybe something just struck a chord with you this morning or, like, stirred something in you, and you're like, you know, I just want to pray right now. I, want, I don't know who to go to. Or they would love to pray with you this morning, okay? So if you'll grab one of our prayer partners, they'll be, like I said, at the front and the back. You can slip away to a prayer room. You can talk. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, my my hope for you is that you would grab one of our prayer partners and just let them talk with you and pray with you this morning about making that decision to trust Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll respond. Um, Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful this morning that you are not a God conformed to our image. Father, how hopeless would this life be if your very existence depended on our imagination? and wants. Father, we're so thankful that you are the creator and we are the creation. And this morning, God, you reminded us that the world you created has a moral framework. And you've reminded us where we sit in that moral framework this morning. And God, you showed us this morning that it's, that it's good and it's right to mourn with those who mourn and to, to weep with those who weep. And in doing so, God, we reflect your very heart God, this morning, you've reminded us that you can both be judicial and loving because you're a dad. That's what dads do. God, this morning, would you work in us? I just wanna ask, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place that you would fill this room, fill our hearts, that you would move among the people here in this room. God, stir in our hearts deep convictions. Speak to us We pray all these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Let's respond.